Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello, and welcome to another edition of RazorWire. Today, we are going to be talking about the reality of cyber warfare. Now, this is going to be an interesting podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking about certain things that are, you know, possibly a little bit risky for YouTube. So we might have to change some of the wordings and sort of soften some of the wordings a little bit. So please bear with us on this one. Information security and YouTube can sometimes be a bit interesting. But um, I have two fantastic guests today. I have Oliver, and I have Victor. So, Victor, let's start with you. Do you want to kind of just give yourself a little bit of a an intro to the people out there? Of course. Um, well, my name is Victor. I've been working in cybersecurity for about 10 years now. And uh, I'm currently leading the threat intelligence department at Outpost24, a cybersecurity company based in Sweden. Oliver, everybody should know you by now, but you might as well give yourself a little bit of an intro. Yeah, you know, I'm chief futurist at a small um, German startup doing really cool security data stuff called Tensia, and which is just a fancy way of basically saying that I, I work on product strategy um, and also on, on marketing positioning and so on, technical marketing very much. My own background is uh, hands-on. I've worked in, a, in for SOX, Pentester, and also worked at Gartner as a security analyst. Fantastic. So... Let's do a bit of a brief on warfare in general. Now, the human race has been attacking one another since we climbed out that primordial ooze back in the day when uh, we thought it would be a good idea to breathe air. Um, Usually for many years, it was fighting over resources, sometimes fighting over one another, sometimes we just didn't like one another. But the human race has been well used to battling it out for many thousands of years uh, and well beyond, I think pretty much every species on the planet at some point has, has pretty much gone to war with one another. Over the years, we developed various different ways of finding new and interesting ways of, of handling warfare and, and un- undertaking warfare from swords, bows, and so on and so forth. You know, even down to simple fisticuffs, there's whole entire kind of martial arts that have, and, and systems of philosophy that have been built and have come from warfare in general. And then we fast forward many thousands of years, a very, very famous text by a, a, a general called Sun Tzu who, that's still used today in business and in various different other mediums as well. We fast forward again and we have refined it to the point where we've got all kinds of different new interesting weaponry now. Um, I shall leave it at that. Uh, many that go bang quite significantly. Um, And one of the latest or one of the more recent mediums um, of warfare has been really around that cyber piece where we are now intrinsically linked to our technology in ways that we never have been in the past. Many of our critical systems, critical services are run by technology. Um, We're starting to go down many automotive routes where we're starting to rely on that technology to do a hell of a lot more. And obviously, you know, with the fourth industrial revolution potentially coming down the line as well, we're looking at that only increasing. And as a species, we are very reliant on our technology. Now, that has not gone unnoticed from various different quarters. And for many years now, a lot of InfoSec people have been talking about the subject matter of cyber warfare, what it would look like, how it would be conducted, what are we there to look out for? And we haven't really had much of a position to be able to look objectively at it in many respects as a reality until kind of now for obvious reasons with what's going on in the world. Yes, we've seen some of it in the past and there's been stuff that's been going on behind the scenes and people have been undertaking espionage for a long, long time now. But now we are actually facing a real reality where this might actually, actually occur wholesale and with in the guards of actual warfare alongside something kinetic. Scary times, really, guys. Um, what are your thoughts? I suppose let's start with that, really, on on where we are in the whole grand scheme of things. I think the reality is is here. I think it's just a matter of time if we read what's going on in the media and what's going on 
uh, from various different information sources. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think um, the current situation uh, sort of has been a really interesting case of study. Uh, I believe it's the first time, as you said, that we've first seen uh, a nation deploy actual cyber warfare tactics way before the actual start of the conflict. And this uh, this has sort of uh, worked as a testing ground, right? Uh, both for for the for both sides, really, right? In order to understand what sort of tactic works best when when the when the cyber warfare should actually start, right? And how to accompany that with uh, that kinetic component uh, that you mentioned. You know, I think the internet, most of our digital technology and the culture around it, grew up during the age of globalization when well, the world was a whole lot friendlier than it is on average. And as a consequence, we never really took security very seriously. It was just fraud loss, credit card company covered it. Now we're caught in this situation where essentially every nation state is a glass cannon. You can successfully attack, but you have such a huge attack surface across your entire society, you can't successfully defend. That's a strange situation because there's no good deterrence on a technical basis right now, there's only a kinetic deterrence, a threat of being able to blow somebody up. So it's very asymmetric. Any large state can basically attack any smaller state without any fear of retaliation, realistically, other than on the cyber domain. And if they retaliate too hard, well, you go kinetic, right? So there's a huge power imbalance out of this as well. And it's going to strengthen these power imbalances. We think that it gives smaller countries like this underdog ability. North Korea would be a good example. But, you know, they're not really doing anything serious with it yet. And there's a whole other deterrence thing going on there, why they're able to act the way that they do. But overall, it's a power imbalance. And no country is able to defend very well in the moment, except if you're not very dependent on your digital infrastructure, or if you start decoupling. And that, I think, is the thing that we're seeing, that decoupling and how that will impact future cyber wars is a completely different question as well. I think it's odd, you know, well, it's not odd, it's, it's, it's quite frightening, you know, the plausible deniability you get with this kind of method of warfare is quite significant because, you know, people can say, oh, it was a certain group that were associated, you know, with a, a nation state, but you can't corroborate that 100%. I mean, obviously, if an army comes rolling over the, over the hill, you know who they are. When it comes to cyber, though, you don't. And there's no way necessarily of 100%. I mean, I'm sure there are probably methods that, 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 that government states have got to figure it out. But let's face it, you know, the, the attack patterns they're using, the methodology that they're using, the way that they're doing it, you can't, you can't guarantee. So... You know, that plausible deniability thing that you've heard a few times of, you know, one side say, oh, a certain group associated with a certain, you know, certain country has, has attacked some of our infrastructure. And then that country say, well, no, we haven't touched nothing to do with us. Prove it. And of course they can't. And then you have things like pipelines going down. And then the rest of us are all sitting there saying, well, is it or isn't it? Now, us InfoSec people who have worked in this space for a long period of time, I think we've got a, a better idea roughly of what's going on behind the scenes because we've lived, breathed, you know, breathed and slept and eaten this for, for many, many years. But it's, it's a tough situation for your average person to understand why has the power gone out? Why has the water suddenly stopped? shouldn't nation states be secure in this and i think what a lot of people and it's something you actually just mentioned oliver we're so not geared up for defense in the way that our nations work that and the security is so bad because i mean a lot of the security is kind of built by the lowest bidder which always goes down well um, and always provides you the best possible service i was chatting with um a critical infrastructure supplier well-known one from the states who do kind of management of those kinds of platforms and intelligence on those kinds of platforms and they were saying you have no idea how insecure and how hard it's going to be should it really kick off well actually it's sort of um it sort of reminds me a bit you know of uh, the way you look at cyber warfare it sounds very much like it would be something similar to to an action an actual uh, ground invasion Right. But uh, usually the targets that are chosen, the way people go about them, they, are more, they, they remind me 
much more of uh, the operations uh, carried out by maybe dev crew elements, uh, you know, intelligence agencies. Oh, it's not the sort of action that you actually can actually, um, you know, prove, right? Uh, whether it was a, an agent of the state that infiltrated uh, the power company and just cut the supply lines or someone from the actual nation, you know, connecting to that service and taking it down uh, by cyber, by cyber warfare means. In both cases, there's no way usually to prove it unless you catch the guy in the act. Of course, cyber warfare makes that, uh, or the cyber aspect of it makes it much harder. Define cyber warfare, right? And, and I'm saying this because low frequency adversarial espionage is normal. Every government on the earth practices it. In a democracy, we vote representatives who put checks and balances on it. That's the mechanism we use to make it palatable. But in reality, it always goes on. With cyber espionage, it's become very public because it's noticeable. So it's just opened up that whole discussion for something which really is, goes on all of the time. That escalation to cyber warfare, however, is something slightly different. It has specific purposes. As Victor said, it's comparable to what, you know, special forces would do. And I don't see cyber warfare occurring in the absence of traditional warfare. It will be part of that first wave to basically sow confusion, to create fog of war, and also to knock out critical strategic targets, as we saw in, in Ukraine, sadly, where the attempts were made. And these, what's considered critical, it's sometimes actually quite subtle. It's not always the obvious stuff. It could be the satellite, which is actually carrying your communications, right, rather than actually attacking the communications companies directly. We haven't really seen it, I think, to the fullest impact. And what I mean by that is Ukraine was interesting because while there was activity going on, it did show that cyber warfare isn't as effective as people feared before the conflict. It's not pushed the needle that much, surprisingly. Even though there's been lots of activities, it's part of it's one of the domains, but it's a supporting domain. You can't win a cyber war just with cyber. Like, you can't win a war, sorry, just with cyber. No, I agree. In most cases. It, yeah, so, and so so it's interesting in that regard. But we have to separate this between essentially espionage, which is always going on, to actually being part of a, an, an act of aggression as defined, you know, by international warfare. Uh, law, sorry, lawfare. <laughs> just unpack some of that. I, I mean, personally, I think I think it's been going on a while. And I think the people have, I mean, if I was to undertake that kind of thing, if I was in that domain and I was in charge of it, it, it's a, it you're absolutely right, it's a supportive element. But the ability to destabilize critical economies, you know, let's look at it that way. You've got to look at some of the other stuff that's been going on, with, for instance, with the economy and chip manufacturers and where they are in the world and all the rest of it. And you yeah, no, no, and sort of the pressure that it also puts in the, in the, pub, in the public. Right. Mm. Um, we have seen, for example, Russia taking these uh, or making these small tests uh, before actually before the actual invasion of Ukraine. Right. We saw Sandborn, for example, destabilizing the energy infrastructure of Ukraine in 2015, 2017, and right before the start of the of the war, just at the beginning of the land invasion, we has, we saw them deploying uh, hermetic wiper in uh, financial infrastructure, energy infrastructure. So that, for example, the the public themselves could not, uh, let's say, flee their country or save their assets, right? If their banks are frozen in place at the beginning of the war, the public cannot react either, right? And the same sort of happens with uh, all of the denial of service attacks. The fact that the public cannot access uh, information from the government, from their website, for example, status of the war, instructions for evacuation, all of that sort of just increases the chaos within the country and forces the government to redirect resources uh, towards uh, towards that. So I don't think, as you say, uh, Oliver, it's not something that uh, will be essential to the to the war effort, but it definitely helps push in that direction, right? And then we have to also think about the effectiveness of the actual cyber warfare carried out by by um, by by Russia in this case. Um, there, I believe there was a sort of a failed operation at the beginning. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember Cyclops Blink, uh, in which they tried to put backdoors basically on firewalls from a, from a certain company, a cybersecurity company, but they didn't fully manage to carry that out. I think that they had a lot of stuff prepared that uh, didn't really work out as they intended, which 
might have also mitigated a bit the consequences. I mean, but also compared to a conventional military, the amount of resources that are available for cyber warfare are actually quite small. There's not like a team of a thousand people there in very, you know, in most cases. So we have to keep that in mind. The effect is going to be limited almost by the fact that it's it's just smaller teams actually doing this, right? Yeah, I mean, I just think that we've been waging this this cold war for a while where it's being used to destabilize a populace socially as well. You know, there's a lot of arguments, socially speaking, in the Western world at the moment, far more than I remember there being when I was 20. I mean, I don't remember half the problems that we have now. You know, I'm not going to go into them because obviously that will definitely get us, get us a red mark on YouTube. There's been accusations of meddling in elections from various different people that may or may not have been mentioned here before on very contentious potential candidates that that, that have really destabilised people's views. I mean, I've never seen a populace so paranoid now about social issues when we've got what's go, you know a whole economy that seems to be going dramatically down the toilet inflation running rampant and people worried about this and i just see it as you can do so much damage and you there's something you mentioned just there oliver you know we, we've got a small resource and it's like well even a small resource can really really put a lot of fuel on a fire really quickly if they if they use a bit of psychological social engineering and an effort in the long term, in destabilizing that populace. Because if you've got a destabilized populace, when you do start doing the real cyber warfare attacks where you're hitting the infrastructure and you're causing chaos that way, you've already got a populace who are really annoyed with one another and they're spending a lot of time arguing. And before you know it, boom, you've just you've just put the gasoline, as you term it in the States, or petrol if you're here in the UK, all over that already smoldering fire. And before you know it, there's a bonfire going. Definitely. That is sort of how the, and in, in this case, the propaganda machine works a lot in, in Russia as well. Uh, one of the tactics that they most use is basically disinformation campaigns. Once the public doesn't have a source of truth and assumes everything they're being fed, fed is basically lies, right? They will lose trust in uh, their government, in the, their agencies, and in one another. But uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to be con too controversial here, but the truth is that they're, they're not causing the divisions, they're, they're making them bigger. And I yeah. think that's part of the problem. Like, we, we're afraid of being lied to because, well, a lot of people have been lied to in the past or feel like they've been lied to in the past. So we're susceptible to it. I think TikTok is this fantastic example where right now a lot of people are realizing it's basically the algorithms are different outside of China than within China. That's one aspect which is very unusual, but also the fact that it, it's, it is this kind of huge psyop, right? If you're looking for training data on reading human emotion and so on, I couldn't think of a better data source. And it, it, it's a huge, and that's when we talk about it, we say Cold War, not a Cold War yet. This is um, typical intelligence service work, sci psychological operations, destabilizing your adversary because you're always probing. You're always seeing if now is an opportunity where I can actually escalate it. Is it worthwhile? What's the repercussion? And so on, right? And that's what we've been seeing, as you mentioned, Victor, that probing for defenses, seeing how far you could get. I, I think that's, that's something which has been very, very visible. And Russia is the, probably the sideshow if we look at, you know, the China and, and, and the US. Yeah, yeah, if we look at the bigger picture, but it's a harbinger of what's to come. Even more so with the recent meetings, right? Between, uh, I'm not sure if uh, that's YouTube approved, but uh... <laughs> to speak around it, and, and and we could probably talk about <laughs> it. No, 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 I mean, listen, look, I, I will grown up, right? <laughs> Countries have interests which they represent. That's just life, right? I, I'm not, I'm not going to judge anyone for it. But at the end of the day, we have adversaries, not enemies, adversaries. That's the other good distinction around there, right? Yeah, we can. We all know it's coming. I, I, when I was at Gartner. I mean, another analyst wanted to put a prediction forward that by 2025, the internet will be balkanized. And all of the other analysts laughed at us because they said they did that 10 years ago. And so it was interesting to see that this, this has been on the horizon for quite a while. Um, I, I think it was always, um, 
an intermediate phase where we were basically going to be able to share this with comments so easily. But the cyber warfare angle, we're assuming that the internet is going to stay the way it is. And that's probably as a consequence of the cyber warfare model not going to be what's going to occur. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's like we talked about Sun Tzu earlier on, and one of my favorite quotes from Sun Tzu is that all warfare is based on deception. And this is where cyber warfare really comes into its own, you know, because you can sow so much misinformation if you, if, you, if you know the touch points, you've prepped it, as we were just discussing, and then, boom, you can, you can inject something in that just makes everything go nuts, you know. And propaganda has been a problem for well before the internet was ever the internet. But now we have the ability to reach a much wider group of people very, very quickly. I mean, just listening to like normal news media now, a lot of people are sitting there. They, they, you, people used to get their paper when I was a lot younger and traveling into London. They'd read the news for the day on their paper, the FT or whatever it was on the train on the way to work. And they would take it as read, you know, or they'd listen to it on the news before the internet became a thing. And then the internet comes along. And then all of a sudden, we've got access to information you'd never have access to normally, if you know what to look for and, and different opinions and different views. And our, it just kind of showed up our media because, I mean, a lot of the economic problems, good example, I'm getting a lot of my information from other sources other than the BBC. And you look at this, the thing on the BBC and they're sort of saying, oh, everything's fine. You know, inflation isn't too bad. It'll all be a fine. It's transitory. And then you kind of go to watch YouTube channels on people who are specialists in that field. And they're like, it's, it's not transitory at all. This is going to get bad. You know, so the, the whole space has changed now. And I think warfare with it is starting to go down that route as well. Okay. Yeah, you still got the kinetic elements. No one can deny that. Exactly. That, that's sort of what I meant before, right? At the moment, you can sort of find news um, that might be, I'm not getting here about uh, whether, you know, um, uh, YouTube or BBC holds the truth, right? But you can always find news that will conform to your viewpoint, right? That will, that will work with your confirmation bias, making those divisions you were talking about, Oliver, much more easier to exploit, right? If I wanted a certain president to, to you know, to, to actually win the election and uh, he didn't, you know, it's easier to believe that uh, someone actually meddled with the election than uh, thinking that maybe I lost. You know, and maybe it wasn't right in, in that this was the, the candidate everyone wanted. You're right. It, it, these bubbles that we formed, these echo chambers, they make it much easier for somebody to actually tap into that. There was a study done about followers on Twitter early in the 2010, I think, something like that, in which you could see those echo chambers really well represented. Because if you sort of looked at really, you know, pro-Democrat or uh, pro-Republican people, usually they followed each other and there were very few, you know, very few connections between those, those, those two bubbles, right? And this is simply amplified in the current ecosystem of social media. Yeah, it is interesting with psychological aspect, the information manipulation aspect. Of course, with AI, generative AI, it's going to be driven to a brand new level. And it's all very well. But to me, like the, the scariest thing in my mind is having an army of drones. I can't say no. Right. And, and at that point, the question of warfare, cyber warfare, I think it's all going to merge very much like that electronic digital component will become almost like a command and control plane. Right. So I think if you think about what, what we would call it nowadays, electronic countermeasures, that would be the traditional term for it. Right. Or signals intelligence, I think is going to become far more important when it comes to that. But the, the manipulation element right now it seems to be, um, as you mentioned, part of the precursor to it, right? Yeah, and something governments aren't used to yet, I think, or I, I, I believe, is the amount of public information that you have right now, right? Uh, for example, Facebook himself, I think, published a report. You have to, to decide how much you want to trust that. But there has been apparent campaigns targeting army office, officers from, uh, from uh, Ukraine, right? This sort of information before... You know, it took a lot of effort by a threat, in, uh, sorry, by, a, by an intelligence uh, agency to actually gather a list of everyone that was working as a high-ranking officer within an army or from a division, right? And now, following through social media, um, and we've seen this play play its part, right, on the other side as well. I believe there were some strikes uh, done on on, uh, 
uh, Russian generals and gener- Russian officials based on locations from, uh, you know, um, geotagged photograph- uh, photos or, or pictures, messages they sent using unsafe communication lines, that sort of thing, right? The, the globalization, that was unthinkable um, a few years ago. But I mean, this is, I mean, and this goes into like the big tech side of things and where we start talking about how big tech also helped that manipulation occur. You know, I mean, we all saw over a certain incident that caused us all to sit at home for a, you know, for more than a few months, where if you put out there, oh, I think it came from a lab that was nearby to where I think something was, you know, where you're telling us it was. And everybody was like, no, no, no. And people getting cancelled and people getting stopped and all the rest of it. And now it, further information from those same sources of really, you know, who, who control big tech or where that big tech is located, because let's face it, they're in the States, aren't they? So, you know, they'll take their cue. And we've seen other information from when Elon's taken over Twitter about how there is actually interaction between members of the government and the Twitter platform. And now new information is it might well have, and it actually possibly did. And now everyone's going, well, who do I trust now? I can't trust big tech because they're manipulating information. I can't trust the media because they're manipulating information. So who do I trust? And as you say, Victor, it's whoever gives you the, your view that you currently got in your head and reinforcing that view. And I think that's where, where cyber warfare gets it at its most dangerous. Because if you annoy a population enough over one candidate, for instance, because information's put out about how terrible that candidate is and stuff that they could have done in the past, then you can, you can push an entire country down a route of your choosing you know, look at the uh, analytics company that got, got busted for Cambridge. Yeah, Cambridge Analytics got busted for what they were doing. Again, is this cyber warfare? Is it not? I, I, I actually started to think that this kicked off a while back. I did just one last thing. I did watch a really interesting, really interesting interview with a with a Russian guy. I can't remember whether he was part of the army or general or, or the intelligence forces where he explained that the best way to disrupt an enemy is by going at them socially. And he'd explain in great detail how they would, or not great detail, but pretty de- good detail on how they would do it. And then I started thinking about what's been going on in the last few years. I'm thinking, that's been going on. It must be going on because it's never been this bad. Ten years ago, people were basically using the internet for certain types of, certain types of content and sending email. And, and maybe checking up on a few things. Nowadays, though, it's everybody's lives. I, I mean, I, I think we, we mustn't overestimate what can be done by manipulating people that way. There are limits. You have to play within certain rules. You can't just come out with something entirely preposterous. But the fact that people don't know who to trust is even worse. That is the side effect. Because you can't, as the moment you sow that mistrust, your own stuff won't be trusted by large amounts of people either. You're poisoning the well. You can't drink out of it in the future. But that mistrust itself means that the government can't really motivate a population. As we saw during the pandemic, it doesn't matter which side you were on, they struggled to get everyone aligned. I think that that's a bigger danger. But in terms of does that class, is that class of cyber warfare? Not legally, no, not internationally, no. But this low frequency conflict between nations, that's something, as I mentioned, is, always goes on, but it was far more subtle. But if you read books about the Cold War, this isn't new or novel. No. The scale, the scope is, um, the ability to reach so many people doing it remotely into another country without checks and balances, without gatekeepers, that, that's new and novel, yeah. Everything seems to be, you know, we're starting now, we're starting to see now, you know, governments banning other countries' technology, you know, TikTok, good example. Because, you know, they now believe it's being used. Well, of course it was, you know, let's, let's face it. <laughs> Just the same as Facebook probably has been used, and um, you know, for the West and, and all the rest of it. Are we going to start seeing really siloed technology now? Because, I mean, obviously, places like Russia have got their own versions of things, and China definitely have their own versions of things. And they're the masters at controlling info. I mean, you can't search certain terms over there or certain events that occurred where some dude stood in front of a, a large armoured vehicle. You know, you can't see that unless you're circumventing their safeguards. But 
are we now going to start seeing the fact that, you know, we're developing all this security technology, but depending upon where it's developed, depends on who adopts it and who doesn't adopt it. Are we going to wind up with different types of technology then being used to attack other types? And what about AI? When we chuck AI in, and, and this is obviously definitively where our civilization is rapidly going at the moment, we're all spending vast quantities of money in that space, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. It almost seems like it's a an escalation of warfare technology, but not technically warfare technology. I don't know. It's 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 a hard one. I think that balkanization that you're talking about, it's already happened. So when when I was as an, as, you know, working as an industry analyst, I spoke to very few Chinese companies. And when I did, I was blown away by their competitive collateral because there was this entire shadow market in China that I knew nothing about. And it was pretty mature tech you know, vulnerability assessment stuff, I, um, I, operational technology vulnerability assessment stuff of that, which we barely had in, in, in the West at all. So I, there was a separate ecosystem evolving there. As to having multiple, Russia doesn't have the critical mass. If you try to build your own operating system at that scale, it's going to be years behind everybody else. It's these, these centers of gravity that you need to look at. Something in Asia, something in America and Europe, I don't know. I, I, I wish I could bank on Europe, but it's difficult in the moment based on what I'm seeing happening there. I'm, I'm an optimist, but I'm also um, a realist, you know. Um, but definitely, there's going to be these spheres of influence. And yeah, they're going to be, at some point, probably not that compatible because that gatekeeper function, other countries want it built in. The Chinese model is attractive to many countries, right? Not just lots of authoritarian countries out there who want that similar model to be able to control what their population sees or not. Exactly. Being open in the end, the way we are, sort of opens you as well, right, to influence from external parties. It's much harder to influence the Chinese population in this case, in the same, with similar tactics as those of Russia, than it is to influence European or, or American population. Yeah, they, they ban it. Look at TikTok. If you look at the top, the top 10 influencers in China, it's like professors and cooks and stuff. And if you look at the top 10 influencers in other countries, it's not. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a, a family of people who are very dysfunctional. Yeah. And, 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 so, and so you can even see the applied, and that's the danger when you're importing software. Even if you don't see the back door today, you might tomorrow. And, and abusing it, you know, it's for somebody to say, I don't care who it is, to say that I have the option, but I'm so good I'm not going to. I'm sorry. That's yeah, that's not human nature now, is it? <laughs> we talk about, you know, cyber warfare and and one thing that's becoming very evident for me is the differences in the way that different countries do business. Like for instance, in certain countries we've spoken about, central services are very much governed by the by the state one way or the other. Here, obviously we've got uh, in a capital, you know, in a in a the type of lifestyle that we have, we have independent organisations providing services, undertaking those functions for profit and what have you. you know, capital. I'm not going to have an argument about capitalism or whatever, but it's very much present in the West. You know, do you think we've got enough defensive technology in our commercial environment to protect people? because that's what we're talking about with, with cyber warfare, from the effects of cyber warfare. We don't work together. We don't seem to have a central you know, kind of method of defending ourselves against attacks. And we're dependent on the organizations spending appropriate amounts of budget on technology to protect. So let's talk about uh, like an energy firm, for instance. You know, they're going to have their own budgets and figure out their own sort of risk treatments and what have you based off of what their view is of, of the risk but i don't think cyber warfare necessarily comes into it whereas when you're talking about the home office or the government institutions they've got a vested interest in protecting potentially themselves against actual cyber warfare do you think that that's a bit of a problem do you think that our our society and the way that we operate is is really really sensitive to cyber warfare because of that Definitely. I mean, I think that we've gone sort of back right to the beginning of the discussion. Every nation here right now and companies included, we're following, a, as Oliver put it really, really well, a glass cannon approach, right? 
we have almost, we're really fragile. We have the capability of attacking other nations, but uh, cyber warfare does not come into play in almost any risk from almost any uh, company, right? Excluding maybe some in the in the uh, critical infrastructure, which... Defense space. Yeah, which yeah. might think, you know, about um, defense, about, about that sort of, of risks. But still, I don't think they have the, the capital or justification for, for that sort of risk. How likely it is that an energy company in the UK is attacked by, let's say, I don't know, China, for example. Right. Versus how likely it is that they are attacked by a threat actor group that is looking to leverage uh, um, that infection, that intrusion using money, right, for economical gains. I suppose it depends if they're about to roll an army across, you know, because I mean, turning all the energy off in, a, you know, at an organisation before the, uh, your army rolls across the landscape is pretty valuable. So if you look at this from a pure policy point of view, as a company, my investors don't get more money by me. Um, investing our, our cash into what's essentially a national security concern, especially against an undeclared enemy. We're not at war with China. No. How could I possibly justify that to investors, to the markets, without an external mechanism to tell me to? And that's, that's a different question. Are we talking about a digital militia? We don't have a normal militia. No. But, but essentially, how much as a company am I supposed to stick into this if it's a, a non-declared official risk, if I don't know if it's going to hit me, and if there's no ROI on it, right? You could argue it's going to protect your company more generally, but that's a, that's a business risk assessment also based on legalities when it comes down to it and how viable you believe your business is after a data breach. But the time of national security really only occurs in the case of an officially declared conflict you need at least need an enemy. And at that point, you have, well, you know, you basically have a state of emergency, in which case rules apply differently. But in terms of defending a company, we're not geared for defense, we're geared for growth. And uh, you know what I mean? So so, so, so it's, it's hard to, to, to balance that out. How much is enough? Who pays for it? How about giving tax breaks? How about giving an incentive to companies to do it as yeah. an example to protect themselves better? And that's the problem. It's like we're saying to the companies here, your problem is our national security problem, but we're not giving you any help with it. Mm. That's, that's, you know what I mean? It, it, and it's for the citizens, it's just as hard. What guidance are you being given? We're not being told to not install TikTok. Intelligence services knows what TikTok is. That's why they're banning their own staff from using it. But officially, we can't declare it, right? And so even there, the information is a problem. No wonder people are confused and open to misinformation if you can't even get a clear, clear answer from your own government. On it is difficult because it's like, you know, the more kinetic side of defense, you see it. You know, you've got armies, you've got armored vehicles, you've got planes, you've got, you know, stout buildings, sea defenses, whatever. Digitally speaking, we don't have any of that stuff. It's just small islands of tech and companies and what have you, all interlaced and interlinked that you can't quite all track. And there's no way to spend all That's of sort of the beauty of the internet, right, at the time. Well, yeah. Uh, the idea of all being interconnected, um, which has sort of turned against us. Yes, that whole idea that, that we will all end up in a liberal utopia, that idea kind of hasn't occurred and so I guess we have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. I, th I mean, I, I like what you've just, you, you just mentioned actually about tax breaks for critical infrastructure. I think it would, it would get them to move a lot quicker around dealing with some of those security issues. And, and I think we also need to redefine what, I, what, what our view is on critical infrastructure nowadays, because it's very different from what it was 20 years ago. Are internet providers classed as critical infrastructure? Well, yeah supporting cloud companies that, that support, you know, basic functions that underpin now our technology. Gone are the days where companies have a data center in the bottom of their building or a computer room or, dare I say, a computer room, where they have all their kit that they're defending because it's now all spread. We've gone all third-party based now. It's all software as a service and what have you. But we don't know who, who that's being provided by ultimately. Because if you go further enough down the chain, it could be somebody out in some you know foreign country because it's cheap. Yeah, definitely. That sort of goes back to macroeconomics and supply chain, right? Is it possible for a nation to survive and to provision itself from their own country? 
Yeah, it, it's hard. Europe, Europe's been trying for a long time, and, and we're even struggling just to bootstrap that. It, it's hard to, to get that knowledge up and running and to have critical mass to get it financed. I have to say, China have a very different economic model behind it. But but even even in the West, if we're realistic, you know, a few years back there were several academic papers in the US that came out that called cybersecurity a market failure because we failed to provide solutions that are viable. Good security is incredibly expensive. That's why tax breaks might be needed for people to pay that technical debt. It's justified if it moves everyone up. My fear is that it will create a bonanza for useless spenders. Yeah. And so preventing that, making sure that we actually invest that in something good, that's an entirely different problem. Yeah, yeah that means more money, right? Being certified by maybe uh, CISA in the US, uh, equivalent agencies in the UK and Europe. I think, you know, in, in many respects, it gets pulled back now back to the professionals to make, the, you know, the security professionals who are in those organizations to make that determination, make that part of their deliberation when they're looking to, uh, at the security, you know, when they're doing the risk management and they're looking at their assets and they're like, right, look at it this way. We've, we've gone in, what, three years, three years from working in offices predominantly to now working from home. Critical people are dealing with critical information sat on their, in their kitchen, you know, in their kitchen areas or in their little home offices on a BT wireless. And I don't care what BT ads tell you about them being the most secure wireless on the planet. I got pen tests could break that in 10 seconds. I mean, Oliver, you know, he's been a pen tester. You can probably do it in less time than that. Uh, less time than it takes to watch the actual ad. <laughs> With the right not, It's been a while. I might have to throw up Google. Interestingly enough, it sort of goes the other way around, right? Sort of um, parallel to what we're talking about. It has been really interesting to see all of these uh, resistance or grassroots movements that have come up with the conflict, right? Of uh, groups of people from both sides that have aligned and got together to actually fight from a community standpoint against the uh, either uh, power in here, right? Uh, groups from Russia um, attacking um, Western infrastructure and groups from, from, the, from the West actually targeting Russian companies. Like, for example, against the West, which is usually uh, very focused on China, but uh, recently with the conflict, they have switched the targets to, you know, to Russia. I think, I think you're right. I've, I thought, I've worked with a couple of Ukrainian colleagues who there was a lot of um, grassroots organization going on, people volunteering their time after work, companies volunteering some of their employees' time. I think it's been amazing, yeah. But I, I wanted to just pull back to, to, the, to, the, to the legality part. How much of a responsibility does a business have when cyber insurances refuse to pay out when it's an act of war? Well, this is why people aren't... Really what does that act of war, exactly? What, what constitutes an act of war? Because that's the question now. Cyber insurances are saying, well, if it's a North Korean ransomware operator, it's an act of war. Well, But no war has been declared. And, and who, who pays if the insurance won't pay? And of course, the government has to decide this. The government's not stepping up. Merck set precedent for, precedent for that. They won their $1.4 billion case against that. So I don't know. On one hard side of the fence, I could see an insurance group just saying that so they didn't have to pay out because, let's face it, it's a lot of money to pay out. On the other side of the fence, it's like, why hasn't... I'm not stupid enough to think the ransomware hasn't been a component to try to destabilise companies or critical organisations or economies within the West because, I mean, who knows at this point? I think, I think we'll, we'll, we'll go five years, 10 years down the line where hopefully things have smoothed over a little bit and be able to look back at it and maybe see some patterns and see a few things that we can't quite see at the moment because it is all happening all at the same time. We don't have enough InfoSec people. We don't have enough budget. We don't have any incentives or companies don't have any incentives to do it as we've all unpacked. Technology is going crazy at the moment. There's, there's new vendors popping up every five seconds with some new security product. It's interesting, and I, that's the reality of cyber warfare, right? We have the, the reality of cyber warfare on the battlefield, and we have the reality of the cyber warfare everywhere else, which now has become a battlefield. That's, I guess, the other question. Like, which point does targeting civilians become a war crime? Where's the cutoff line there when we're talking about digital activities? If it's attacking essentially civilian infrastructure or, or financial institutions or, or so on, 
Yeah, I think Ukraine might set some precedents for that as well. Yeah. I think that's a frightening point, actually. You know, it's like affecting citizens. Well, feasibly, a lot of this could affect citizens in catastrophic ways for them individually or for their, their family units or for their small communities. Um, and I think that's really where we kind of round to the to the reality of cyber warfare. I, I don't think a large chunk of it is going to be attacking directly nation-state infrastructure, although that will be part of it. I think more it's going to be geared towards destabilizing that nation or that group of nations, whatever it may well be, over a longer period of time before that even gets considered. And how we defend against that, I haven't really got a clue. Do your defense in depth, I suppose. But... <laughs> against this information. <laughs> exactly. You know, intelligence now is a big thing. Let's look at it that way. It's it's now part of ISO 27001. Um, and I think that's going to play a, a massive part. And I think any organization in the security intelligence space is going to do well over the next few years. Let's, let's be honest. But the other question is, realistically, what chance does the average business have of defending themselves against a nation state actor? And none. I'll be honest, it's none. None, exactly. none at all. <laughs> none. <laughs> like, if they can't keep that, and, and that's, I think that's the other question. Like, maybe we're thinking about the wrong solution set. Maybe we have to think of how this could be dis disincentivized on a different level. But uh, critical infrastructure, the question is, how do you lift them up so that they have a hardened surface? And the rest I wouldn't even concentrate on. They're never likely to be able to defend themselves. But yeah, I think that that's a different, different, completely different question of how much security is good enough. Well, exactly. I mean, it, you, that usually comes right from from the stakeholders of the organization. I think it's way easier to justify to your board that North Korea has actually targeted your organization specifically with uh, you know technology that costs millions because they had an interest in you versus. No, look, there was one kid in the basement that just found, you know, an SQL injection and now, you know, I lost all of my data. Those are two different arguments, right? Well, I think this is the first podcast I've come to the end of where we don't have a, 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 a way forward. I think we're all just sort of a bit concerned now. <laughs> well, going back to what we were talking before, right? Um, the cybersecurity industry being a bit pessimistic with uh, <laughs> with little to no solutions for some of the most urgent problems that we that we're facing day to day. I think it's 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 throwing a big light actually on how insecure our technology is. All of this is, you know, the ransomware stuff, the changes, the we've seen security sort of go from five years ago where companies kind of really didn't care too greatly about it, to be totally honest. They had concerns, but nothing like they do now. Now, I've, I've never seen such a difference in, in an attitude towards security. It's still relatively recent that this has escalated. We didn't develop to defend civilian networks against nation states. It, it no. didn't seem a priority before. And we've always bolted security onto the bat. The question is, like... What do we do until we can reach a point of of better protection? Because we have that technical debt that we've built up. And I think that's a more, like, it's okay to think about what we can do in 10 years' time. What can you do in one, in two, in three years' time to improve that? But that depends a little bit of how imminent you believe any kind of conflict will be, which is, I'll be honest, at this point, it's hard. it might never be, right? I think this is the thing, though. When, when it happens, it's going to happen fast so fast that that you won't even be aware of it until it's too late. On a pessimistic note, <laughs> let's end on that. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, what are your final what are your final thoughts on it? I mean, yeah, what is the what is the reality of cyber warfare as the way that we're looking at it at the moment? I mean, we are seemingly going to be going down that route or we are already going down that route as we've as we've kind of already discussed. So you know, I think a lot of there's going to be a hell of a lot of bloody lessons learned out at the end of this one. I tell you that. But what are your final thoughts on the whole thing, or do you have any? I mean, or is it just well, no, as you say, the cyber warfare is something that is already happening. We're really, and not only in the conflict with Ukraine, but in in everywhere else, right? We're already seeing a lot of uh, um, nations stepping up their game, sort of, uh, in the cyber warfare related attacks, or maybe even tests, conducting, you know, probing how weak your infrastructure actually is. I think that um, it's not a matter, basically with everything in cybersecurity, it's not a matter if this will happen, but when will it happen, 
right? From my point of view, I think uh, it is a responsibility of the state uh, defending those private companies from other nations. Uh, it's not a burden that should be put on every on every company, right? It's one thing to defend from individuals which might have interests uh, in your company, and still, that's a cha- that's a really big challenge for many companies nowadays. Uh, but it's a different thing to defend against, uh, you know, advanced nations such as, such as China or uh, or, or some other uh, some other countries. I'm not sure which ones to mention. <laughs> We've already mentioned all of them now, so I don't think it matters. Iran. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was one of the <laughs> that was one of the, one of the ones I'm thinking of. Yeah. I mean, listen, listen, the West does it too, right? We all know. I, I, I said we, we have to be like, we have to talk about reality here. But I, I agree with Victor. It, it's it's not a commercial problem. Businesses have enough to deal with with cyber criminals. If they're deemed critical infrastructure, the government has to cooperate with them, provide guidance. For most businesses, because they're collateral damage in this game of, of nations, I think it's more important for them to know what to do if something happens, that they're, that they're not going to be just um, left, you know, to deal with the damage themselves because they are victims in this. We mustn't forget, right? They are collateral damage. And I think that that cooperation between government and business needs to improve if the future is going to be more adversarial in general. Right now, business sees the government as a source of cash mm. in many cases. And in reality, it needs to be a collaboration because... Um, if you have a nation state adversary, they're out to get both of you. I think that's the important thing. You know, you have to provide a unified front. It's that divide and conquer, as we said about the psychological operations that makes us susceptible. And that, that also means civilian and uh, government cooperation. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think we've reached the, the top end of the hour here. It's been a really interesting debate, and I've got a sneaky suspicion we're going to be having this debate again down the line and unpacking maybe some of the stuff that that, that that we've seen happen between now and and then as well, and maybe we'll we'll come up with a few more ideas and 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 ways of of kind of handling it. But I'd like to thank Oliver and Victor for their words of wisdom once more on this fantastic podcast, and uh, you'll be seeing a lot more of them, no doubt, in the future, uh, and maybe a, a a return to the reality of cyber warfare peace in about two or three years uh, where we can have a look at it again thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast if you like the podcast if you love the podcast please feel free to subscribe and if you have any questions please get in touch thank you very much and have a great day